Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. As part of our short series discussing the role of nuclear power in Wales, we are delighted to welcome Mabon Apwinva, member of the Senate for Dwyver Morionid, and the author of the brilliant new book, Going Nuclear, which discusses all the common conceptions and misconceptions of nuclear power. From discussing the idea that it brings with it well-paid jobs to the fact nuclear energy will be an essential part of our future energy mix, Mabon's book covers it all. Welcome, Mabon. Thanks for joining us tonight. You know, a Senate member writing a book is a great thing to see. Uh, it is an excellent uh, read. But can you tell us what inspired you to, to write this book in the first instance? Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks for the invitation to take part uh, on the pod. The, the story behind the book is is uh, is interesting, to be honest. When I was a candidate for Duver Marionid in the last election, clearly there was a lot of talk back then around a renaissance in nuclear power. And we've got Trous Fynydd in Duver Marionid. And there was uh, some pressure on me uh, to support the demands for a new reactor in Trous Fynydd. And I've always been what I call uh, a sceptic of uh, nuclear power uh, and nuclear technology. And then when I was elected, uh, I was lobbied heavily by the sector, um, by third party organisations, by companies involved and others. And they gave me one side of the debate and and explained how in their view it was absolutely necessary and a brilliant technology. And I expressed my concerns on a number of issues uh, to do with safety, to do with links with militarism uh, and other things. And they promised me that they would come back with briefing notes uh, to correct my uh, concerns or correct some of the assumptions I had. Unfortunately, they never did come back. They only asked for more meetings. And so I, I took it upon myself to do that research myself. So I went about and asked uh, world experts from Canada, France, the UK, Japan, Australia and elsewhere about information around the impacts on the environment, the impacts on communities where uranium is mined, around the safety of it, around the uh, economy of it uh, and everything else. And the picture that was painted in that research was very, very different to the one painted by the lobbying groups and the organisations that wanted me to support nuclear in the first place. And so that's what the book is, essentially, a culmination of that research, bringing together all that information that I had. And in that process, I thought to myself, well, surely uh, I shouldn't be uh, getting all this information and keeping it to myself. This information needs to be out there. Others need to know what I'm hearing. And that's why I went about and published a book then, just bringing that research together in in, in one uh, book form. I think you mentioned Trace Leonard and obviously the other Welsh nuclear legacy area is on Anglesey with Wilder. You know, mm-hmm. There's a suggestion that the popularity of nuclear energy is, is quite high in your constituency. So this could be considered quite a brave thing to publish. Do, do you think that's the case? Um, I don't know whether it's brave and I don't know whether um, the support is high. Now, clearly what we do know, evidence shows that in what uh, someone calls a nuclearized society, then there is a greater support for nuclear because those communities have uh, become used to it uh, without necessarily seeing the direct negative impacts of nuclear on those communities. 
So, so I can understand why some people would support it. And, and we've had two or three generations working in Trosfynydd and Wilvan. And personally, I, I respect all of those individuals. I have friends working in, in Trosfynydd on the decommissioning side now. Uh, and I fully understand uh, where they come from, but we disagree. There's no uh, argument, or there's no falling out on it, but we disagree on, on the technology. But, uh, you know, I've come across uh, a lot of people who have approached me before the publication of this book and, and post-publication who are really concerned uh, about nuclear. Some have been uh, historically and some are now concerned about the new talk for, for nuclear. So I'm not convinced that there is a huge uh, uh, support for nuclear out there. The, the evidence that I'm getting is that there's huge concern around it. In fairness to you, in the book... It- you don't just look at it for all from one side. You have a lot of admiration for this for the scientific achievements of nuclear power, um, despite you know your kind of self-confessed scepticism. Can you talk us through some of those kind of areas that you did find you could admire in your research? Well, look, if if we go back to the previous pod where you had Rachel Garrick on, she's clearly an exceptionally intelligent individual. She must be to be working in 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 that field, um, and I have the utmost respect for her, and for those friends of mine working in the decommissioning site in in Trosfynydd, who are also uh, exceptionally uh, talented and fantastically intelligent individuals. Uh, you know, anybody that can work in uh, nuclear must be uh, intelligent academically, uh, with a number of things, and and having. You know, breaking that the breakthrough of um, splitting the atom initially, and then finding how to harness the power of, of uh, the atom when it's released, and then all of the technology that's come from that, is an immensely clever uh, achievement, uh, and we can't underestimate it. You know, it, it's at the moment probably at the peak of human ingenuity. So I've got nothing but respect and admiration for those individuals, uh, the scientists, um, the technicians. um, You know, you've got some fantastic welders working in that field who understand the steel uh, and and the components involved. So, yeah, completely in in admiration of the individuals there. But I don't support the technology. Uh, It's pretty simple. Uh, The technology is dirty. It's extremely dangerous. You know, the toxic and radioactive legacy of nuclear, not just from the the material used in power generation, but from the process of mining nuclear all through to, to the used material. We've got a toxic legacy there that will last tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. If the Romans, if... No, before the Romans. If our ancestors, those that left Eastern Africa and went out across the globe, if they discovered uranium and cracked the technology back in those days, uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago, we would still be dealing with a legacy today. We will be a different species by the time we are able to clear up this mess that is left behind and it is toxic and radioactive it's a killer there is no way of dealing with the waste either in the mining communities or in uh, the areas where uh, that material is used for 
for fuel purposes. But not only that, the link between nuclear fuel and weapons, weapons-grade plutonium and, and military use of, of nuclear is absolutely clear. So it's not a good material in any case. It's used for the ultimate weapon. And we saw uh, the uh, initial versions in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which killed uh, over 150,000 immediately between both of them. And we know that if they dropped uh, one of those bombs today, uh, in an act of aggression or defence, it would result in the killing of hundreds of thousands of people immediately and millions of people indirectly afterwards. So, you know, it, it's something we shouldn't be looking to support. That, um, the look around the military use of nuclear something in this short series we haven't really touched on. So if I can just bring that to the fore, because there are increasingly links between civilian and military uses of nuclear energy, isn't there? Absolutely. We know historically, you know, nuclear is still relatively young. They, they only had the breakthrough in the 19, uh, late 30s, 1940s. So since that period of the end of the Second World War and during the Cold War period, we know that developing nuclear as a source of fuel was actually a facade because the first uh, nuclear power plant was in Calder Hall, and that was basically a plutonium factory. Uh, we know that. There's plenty of evidence for it. They try to hide it a little bit, but, you know, if you read Hansard going back to the 1950s, it becomes clear that, yes, it was used initially for plutonium. We know in Trausvanith that Unit 2 in Trausvanith alone and this is research carried out uh, by the US government, Unitoon Trausvanith, during its lifetime, produced 3.633 metric tonnes of weapons-grade plutonium. So in that uh, the first decades of nuclear, there was a clear link that the, the uh, plutonium that was created in those reactors was used directly for the purposes of weapons. Now, things have changed since then. So it's not so direct now that the, the waste isn't used directly for weapons. What we're now seeing is that link, the skills link between both sectors. And that's why, essentially, we're seeing this drumbeat and this drive towards new, a new generation of nuclear power. We wouldn't see it otherwise. is because the UK government realised back in the early noughties that they needed uh, a new fleet of nuclear-powered submarines uh, and the new dreadnought would be coming online, as well as the astute class of nuclear-propelled vessels. Now, the UK doesn't have that skill set required in order to maintain those submarines and nuclear vessels, let alone Trident, the, the weapons, the missiles. And... You know they hadn't um, they hadn't recruited nor developed the skills required, because all the nuclear power stations were slowly, gradually winding down and closing. So they realised they needed the skills, and that's why we're now seeing this drive for new nuclear power stations is because in that sector they will be producing the fantastically intelligent young people that will be required in order to transfer those skills to maintain 
the nuclear military equipment. Now, we know this because if you read some of the material by Rolls-Royce, for instance, if I uh, bear with me one second, I've, I've got quotes in my book. Let me just uh, find some of the quotes here. Uh, chief executive, the then chief executive of Rolls-Royce's uh, small modular reactor program said, developing a UK SMR, a small modular reactor, would help Rolls-Royce maintain UK capabilities for the country's military nuclear naval program. Then on a Rolls-Royce glossy leaflet, they said one particular application for deployment of the talent developed through the UK SMR program would be in the ongoing maintenance of the UK's independent nuclear deterrent. Then also we've got Sir Stephen Lovegrove, who uh, on record in, uh, in one of the committees in Westminster, made clear, he said, we are looking at a number of decades from here on in where there is going to be intensive nuclear activity in the UK, building the submarines, renewing the warhead, extending the missiles, building the new civil nuclear reactors and continuing with the immense task of decommissioning. So there's a clear link there. They make, make it pretty obvious that uh, it's uh, interchangeable and they need the skills, the skilled individuals in order to maintain those naval um, weapons and technology. So if we're opposed to Trident and uh, weapons of mass destruction and nuclear-powered uh, vessels, then we shouldn't really support new nuclear power because we don't need new nuclear nuclear power. That's really interesting, actually, and uh, it, it's an area I wasn't so aware of, that kind of link between the civilian and the military side of it. But you mentioned in your answer there around the deterrent, and I suppose we've got to we've got to mention if we're talking around the military, and that kind of suggestion that you know nuclear weapons have acted as that deterrent to more traditional conflicts from larger global powers over the last 50, 60 years. You know, is that something we should be considering in this, or could you argue against that as well? Absolutely, we don't need nuclear weapons. We need to uh, unilaterally disarm our nuclear weapons and uh, put pressure on every other nuclear society and country to disarm as well and get rid of their nuclear weapons. It hasn't stopped uh, Russia from invading Ukraine. The fact that uh, the UK and NATO have nuclear weapons hasn't stopped that at all. We've seen wars being fought uh, across the world over the last few decades and nuclear weapons didn't stop any of it. The biggest threat that we have seen uh, in the world uh, over the last couple of years was COVID. And nuclear weapons didn't do anything to stop COVID-19 and the mass deaths that came from that. So, you know, nuclear weapons haven't deterred uh, anything. In fact, it's only made things worse. And what it has meant is we've seen a diversion of, of uh, resources from worthwhile projects, like investing in finding a treatment for cancer, for instance, or other uh, health-related uh, issues, or investing in teachers and the education of our children. Instead of having those billions, billions of pounds going into those worthwhile projects, we've seen that money being invested in nuclear weapons and nuclear technology. And we know that the nuclear sector are saying they're looking uh, at uh, employing around 100,000 people in the nuclear sector over the next few years. Well, 
those people could instead be, uh, and the, the fantastic skills and intelligence that they have, could be put to research in health, could be put uh, to work in, in our universities, to educate our young people, could be put to other uses uh, for peaceful purposes rather than uh, developing uh, nuclear technology linked to weapons. No, I, I think there's a, there's a strong argument there. and um, But I think uh, the whole discussion on deterrent and current conflicts around the world is for another pod. I'm sure we'll be, have you on for that. Um, but it is, you know, that kind of idea about conflict and geopolitical positions. A lot of what we're talking around is around that, what happens in the political environment. So where do you think things are now surrounding the nuclear energy argument, both within the UK and within Wales? Well, we know that the Welsh Government are currently pushing for nuclear in Wales. I don't understand why. Uh, we can't afford it in Wales to begin with. It is the single most expensive form of energy production. It is more expensive than anything else. And in fact, we pay more for our electricity here in Wales than any other part of the UK, especially in North Wales. We pay the highest prices for, for electricity. Um, so we're actually subsidizing through our uh, electric payments here, we're subsidizing the money that goes into nuclear, which will be the most expensive form of power. So I, I don't understand why the Welsh government are so keen on uh, promoting nuclear currently. I, I think they've just fallen for the PR uh, around it and, you know, think uh, that for whatever reason, a developed uh, Western country needs nuclear. That's not true, you know. We look at most of the Scandinavian countries. We look at uh, other countries uh, that are, are advanced and developed and they don't have nuclear power. And, you know, we're seeing Germany and Austria calling for other countries to go out of nuclear and, and they're very advanced societies. So I don't know why they're doing it. But, you know, I think we need to make sure that people are aware of the dangers of nuclear. Nuclear is being dressed up as an answer to environmental concerns. It absolutely isn't. Uh, it's one of the, the biggest selling points currently why uh, people are promoting nuclear is because of global warming. But it, it's not going to uh, answer those concerns in any way at all. Um, and we need to, um, you know, put that argument to bed immediately. So, yeah, I, I'm afraid I can't answer that question, Kerry. It's fair to say, so Welsh government are going down that supportive route. Uh, UK government with the current administration are certainly looking at that. Yeah, the, the, the UK government, let's, let's go for the UK government. The UK government are, are, are promoting nuclear for a number of reasons. First of all, with the environment. They're saying that they, you know, it needs to be part of the mix, right? Rubbish. First of all, nuclear won't play any part at all in tackling climate change until anything after 2050. Right, So the United Nations have made it clear that uh, four, some four years ago, they said, look, we've got 12 years before we we reach a tipping point. Yeah, and we cross that threshold of two degrees Celsius uh, warmer than what it was pre-industrial period. Well, we're, we're, we're going to cross the 1.5% degrees pretty soon, if we're not there already, actually. And now we've got eight years in order to really... Uh, do everything we can to tackle uh, global climate change. Now, 
they started Hinkley Point C uh, under Theresa May, and we're still probably 10 years away from getting Hinkley Point C fired up and producing energy. That's just one that's been promised. They promised, the UK government, actually back in 2008, promised 11 new nuclear reactors to help tackle global climate change. We're only building half at the moment. So if, if they think nuclear is going to play a part in tackling climate change, then we would see more urgency around this. But we're not seeing any urgency around it. We're just seeing a lot of money thrown at it, a lot of PR and a lot of talk around it. So nuclear isn't going to play uh, any part in that. They're also saying that it needs to be part of the energy mix. Well, we know that, you know, let's just look at Wales. Wales is currently producing more energy than what we are using. We're exporting energy. And if you look at the National Grid's projections, 2050, Wales will be producing even more energy without nuclear. We'll be producing even more energy and exporting more energy. So we don't need nuclear in Wales. The UK doesn't need it. We've got around the UK, we've got the most fantastic resource already for energy generation. That's the wind that we have. That's tidal. We also have solar ability, let alone the technology technology that's been, been produced in storage, battery, for instance. Now, what the UK government should have done is invested a fraction of what they put into nuclear into tidal energy. And we would have Swansea Bay, for instance, up and running by now, but they haven't. They've instead thrown money at nuclear and we still don't have a new reactor. So as part of the energy mix, we, we don't need it. We've got enough other forms of energy generations. They're, they're also saying that, you know, we need nuclear for baseload purposes. Again, that's not true. In fact, the National Grid is saying that if we had more nuclear online, it could be dangerous because in the summer, at quiet periods, we could be having too much energy pre being produced, uh, which would create a massive problem uh, for the grid. In the summer, we can produce the energy we need through solar, through tidal, through uh, other uh, forms of generation. And in the winter period, when we have high demand, we've got enough wind here, let alone everything else. So again, we don't need nuclear. The other part, incidentally, I forgot to mention with the uh, environmental argument is, again, if you look at the National Grid's projections, nuclear is damaging the environment now as we speak. And they'll explain that to you. Because of the constant promise of new nuclear since the early noughties, but definitely since around 2008, the UK government have promised nuclear, saying, you know, nuclear is going to come in line, it's going to save us, but it never has. And because of that constant promise, but you know, over-promising and under-delivering, we have kept with gas. We've not invested in other forms of generation to the uh, degree we should have, and we're, we're using more gas. And as a consequence, we are likely to be at peak gas in about two years' time. Because we're using this gas thinking that nuclear is going to come online all of the time. So we're using more carbon intensive uh, energy uh, production means because of a promise that's never delivered. And that, that's why actually they should just hold their hands up and say, look, nuclear isn't going to de deliver what we want. In fact, again, National Grid says by 2050, SMRs will only play something like, contribute something like 1% to 3% of our nuclear generator, generating uh, capabilities which is, you know, negligible. 
Storage is going to be far more than that. It's going to be around 8%. Marine will be around 3%. So let, let's be honest and say nuclear isn't going to be, play a part in the, definitely not in the short term and not in the medium term either. So let's put the resources into mature technology that we can invest in immediately and make a real difference for the environment. Very compelling argument there. What, what I was going to get on to is the current Conservative administration in Whitehall is certainly pegged to the nuclear argument. But if there's an incoming Labour government, is there energy policy to follow the same suit or have they have they got a different approach? Uh, I'll be honest, I don't know. That's uh, that's up to the Labour Party. Um, I I'm, I don't design their uh, policies. Uh, I would hope that the Labour government would not support it. But seeing Keir Starmer supporting everything else that the Conservatives have put forward recently, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the current iteration of the Labour Party would uh, continue with this drive towards um, new nuclear. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I wasn't trying to catch you. I just thought it might have been something uh, something on energy policy, either you or I was aware of. And the fact that neither of us are maybe says something about uh, mm. forthcoming energy policy. But, yeah. you know, on the political side of it, this might be one of our difficult questions for you. And certainly the nuclear argument is, as a, as a green leaning on my side of it, I do find nuclear difficult. And so what you're talking about tonight is really, really interesting to how I'm positioning my thinking. But it's a well, difficult... let, 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 let's deal with that, that green part, by the way, initially. Uh, if you look well, across I the, the green, world... I meant the Green Party, not yeah, the Yeah, the yeah, the Green, green Party and the Green Movement, yeah. In my research for the book, I spoke to leaders of Green Parties across the world. One of them was in Canada, Lorraine Reckmans. She was fantastic, and she's absolutely against nuclear. There are Green Parties uh, across the world against nuclear, except for Finland. <laughs> and fin- Finland is is a unique in a unique situation because they're feeling threatened currently by Russia, uh, and all the pressures uh, that leads to, and they've changed their position uh, on that. But uh, you know, the, the Green Movement is against nuclear. If you talk to Greenpeace, and I I spoke for a, a long period with Doug Parr of of Greenpeace, the senior scientist within Greenpeace, they're adamantly uh, against nuclear. They don't see nuclear as an answer. If you talk to the WWF, they're against nuclear. If if you talk to Friends of the Earth, they're against nuclear. All the major green organizations, part of the green movement, are against nuclear, except for a few individuals that have been fairly outspoken. But those individuals are the exceptions that prove the rule. Well, no, it's very much where I am. I'm on the negative side was nuclear at the moment but um you know i i these these pods are great for giving information on what i think we feel people need to hear a little bit more about but where i was going to go with my political question is, is no no it's it's really useful it is around your own party's political position on it and the difficulty there has in within plaid cymru can you talk us through where the party is on that yeah, we, we've got policies on nuclear, which says that we don't support any new nuclear uh, and development of new sites in Wales. There's a differing of, of, of views amongst individuals, and I respect those uh, views. I absolutely respect the individuals, I'm good friends with them, but we disagree on the technology. Now, some of those individuals, I, I understand fully why they support nuclear. 
they support nuclear for the same reasons that I support other things. You know, they want to see more jobs. I want to see more jobs. So I respect that. They want to see uh, something that will help with the environment. I certainly want to tackle climate change. So I respect that. They want to see uh, energy security. I want to see energy security. And so I respect that. But I disagree with the conclusions. And so that's why we have to uh, have this uh, friendly conversation continuously in order to reach a point as a community and as a society where we can move forwards, even though we might have differing views, but we can move forwards in in an amiable uh, way. Now, we will disagree on, on some things. That's the nature of, of politics. You know, we, we can't agree on everything, but we have to keep that respect as we move forwards. No, it's, it's uh, well, that's something we'd all like to see a lot more of in politics, whether it it's within individual parties or between parties. But uh, one of the things we talked around is how nuclear energy has come back to the fore. Because mm. if we think back to the 90s and 2000s, uh, certainly in the UK, perhaps not some of our continental friends, but nuclear energy was thought to be an old technology, which we were, which we were decommissioning, closing down. What has brought about that? resurgence is it about energy security and the climate change or is there more is it is it that military link which you mentioned earlier the the, the reason we're seeing this uh, drive towards new nuclear is because of military you know, nothing else really um the the energy that will come from it and and other things is is a bonus as far as those people pushing for new nuclear is concerned but we know that the old vessels, nuclear vessels that we had, had to be decommissioned. Their uh, lifespan was coming to an end and they needed uh, the dreadnought to come online. They needed uh, new nuclear propelled um, vessels and they needed to maintain Trident and they needed to try to have more independence when maintaining Trident rather than depending on the US. And simply that's, that's the reason why we're seeing new nuclear. And that's why, incidentally, we're seeing a drive for nuclear power in Australia. Now, there's no nuclear power generation in Australia. The Australian government have been pretty strong on opposing the generation of nuclear power in Australia. But now there's a new agreement between the UK, the US and Australia, the AUKUS agreement. And Rolls-Royce have won the contract to build nuclear propelled vessels for Australia. Now, Australia clearly wants their own independence when maintaining those uh, vessels. And that's why we're seeing primarily on the right uh, of the political spectrum in Australia, a call for nuclear power in Australia, because they know that they need the skills from that sector to transfer to maintain the nuclear vessels that they will be getting out of the AUKUS agreement. It's an interesting dynamic there. I was just thinking about Rolls-Royce of weighed into the argument on a, a new station outside Cardiff, the Cardiff Parkway station. It's amazing how everything is all linked in, in, in yeah, this well, uh, you know, global you know, world. That's, it is interesting. You know, Rolls-Royce, they are probably the favoured partner for developing a new SMR. They have been for a while. You talk to the sector and the industry and they'll say, oh, no, there are other organisations that we're looking at. But we know it's going to be Rolls-Royce. Let's not beat around the bush because Rolls-Royce have the contract for Dreadnought. 
<laughs> Rolls Royce need that that skills and the workforce in order to maintain the nuclear propelled vessels that they have and and uh, the nuclear submarines. So you know it will be Rolls Royce, even though there's talk of other organiz- uh, companies as well, and and that's why we're we're seeing the the push for for Rolls Royce and Rolls Royce is is the main company talked about when it comes to new nuclear in the UK, uh, and that link is indisputable. And. Rolls-Royce, as you mentioned, are the firm behind SMRs, as you said, small modular reactors. and It's badged as a new technology, but that's not strictly true, is it? And it's quite pertinent to, to you in your constituency with Trace Lenniv, because that's been earmarked as a site for a potential SMR. You know, what, what are your thoughts on where we might be with SMRs over the next 20, 30 years, particularly in your part of Wales? Well, we're not going to be anywhere, to be honest, I don't think. Uh, an SMR isn't a new technology in as much as a, a small reactor is what Rolls-Royce have been producing over the last uh, 40-odd years in the submarines that they have, but uh, generating power is di- slightly different again. SMRs, you know, the the, the proposal for Trosvenith with Rolls-Royce would be a, a 470-megawatt uh, reactor that's not exactly small that's the the same generating power as the old magnox in in Trausfernith. but you know they've not passed the the required safety tests uh, yet for uh, smrs it, there was one company new skill that they were relatively advanced in their development of smr in the usa uh, and they were hoping to develop SMRs for Idaho and, and that region of, of the US. But that agreement has collapsed. They've had to pull out because there was no funding for it. All the funders sort of ran away from, from the project because the cost increases were such that they just didn't see any profit in it for them. They didn't see any money. It, it wouldn't generate any money for, for investors. So investors are running away from nuclear. There's no commercial SMR active anywhere in the world currently. So they will have to, in order for it to become commercial, you know, you can't transfer what's in the US, by the way, to the UK, because they run on, on, on different plans. So if you're going to have a Rolls-Royce or New Scale uh, or Holtec or any of the other companies develop an SMI in the UK, then they need to pass the three-stage generic design assessment process. Rolls-Royce have passed the one first stage, but they're way off the, the second and third stages uh, currently. Other companies haven't passed that first stage yet. So we won't see an accepted design for an SMR probably for five to eight years, Right. So then they'll try concurrently to get some planning permission in place, but you can't get a full planning permission in place and everything around that until you have a full design. So then after they they pass their generic design assessment stages, they will have to get planning. And that'll take a heck of a long time in order to get planning in place. So should we see uh, an SMR being developed in the UK and in Wales, we are probably at least 12 to 15 years off seeing anything being developed, probably 20 years plus, okay? So an SMR isn't going to create any jobs in in Trosvenith or Wales uh, this side of 12, 15, maybe 20 years. 
It's not going to be active. It's not going to play any part in tackling global climate change. And in fact, research now suggests that SMRs are even dirtier than conventional reactors. So I, I, I honestly don't see SMRs playing a role. But that's where all the PR is. That's where all the attention is at. And everybody's getting excited about this glitzy new technology. If you scratch the surface, it's just uh, a mirage. It's it's not there at all. And and you know I've I've done the research into this. I've written a book about it. <laughs> you know, so it, it really isn't there. Don't believe the hype. You're putting that case across very very strongly. And but even if it is a new industry and the glitzy promo videos, uh, I saw a couple this week, do get people to consider nuclear. We need to talk about waste. There isn't any new way of dealing with the waste at the moment, is there at all? No, there's no way at all. Now, now there's waste on two levels. First of all, there's waste on the mining side of it. And I, I've spoken to communities in, in Canada, in Ontario and Canada, and in the uh, Northern Territories of Australia, where they mine uranium. Those communities are amongst the poorest communities in those countries. They suffer the highest levels of illnesses, uh, various cancers, stillbirths, and other serious, serious ailments uh, that are a direct consequence of uh, uranium mining. Suicide levels are higher there as, as well, incidentally. And the uranium mining isn't just getting uranium out of the ground, you know, for to get just seven kilos of fissile material, you need to dig out a thousand tons of rock, you know, and then that has to be leached and cleaned. Now, that leaching process is using sulfuric acid. And all that waste, the toxic uh, waste from the sulfuric acid and uh, the uh, radioactive waste from the uranium and the yellow kick, that all flows into the various river and water bodies in the area, which are then contaminated for thousands of years. So there's that part of it, which is dirty and can't be tackled. And then there's the waste from the uh, energy generation process. And Sellafield is the single biggest uh, storage of nuclear waste, and there's nothing they can do with it. Now, in, in Finland, they've started to develop uh, an idea, and they've, they've built this sort of cave system, a mine. Uh, you, know, you go down a quarter of a mile or something in Olikulto in, in Finland, and they're going to dump this uh, the waste down in the mine and cover it with a tar or something like that um, in order to try and stop it leaching out. On the face of it, that sounds like a reasonable proposition. You know, it's out of the way and there's no people walking around it. But the crust of the earth moves constantly. The The, the worst thing you can do is probably put it in, in the ground because at some point, maybe not in the near future, maybe not over the next few hundred years, but at some point that's going to be leaching out and it will seep out and, and find its way into uh, other parts of the crest. And we know evidence from Australia shows where they, they had uh, nuclear testing, that nuclear that fell and was used in, in parts of Australia is seen four or five generations down the line in animals that have been eating the uh, the plant life 
in those areas. So that nuclear carries on generations down the line and is dangerous. The, the best thing you can do with, with nuclear waste currently is keep it somewhere where you can see it and monitor it. And that's above ground, unfortunately. But that's extraordinarily dangerous. We know that the Irish Sea is probably still the most radioactive and dangerous uh, body of water in the world, except for maybe uh, the area now around Fukushima in, in Japan. But, you know, Sellafield uh, has been uh, losing a thousand tons of, of radioactive water a day into the ocean there. It, it's it's really, really dangerous. Um, and there's no way of treating it. They, they always talk about breakthrough in technology, about how to treat it, and which is, you know, it's always short term. They, they, in, in the nuclear testing sites um, in the Pacific Ocean, you know, you, you might have heard of Bikini Atoll uh, and Castle Bravo bomb sites. Well, the USA brought together all of their nuclear waste from the US and from those test sites. And they put it all on, on one island and put a huge concrete dome over it, the mm -hmm. Runit Dome, they, they called it. And it was the the best technology, the most modern concrete technology in the world, and that would store the the radioactive waste beneath it, and it would be safe. That was 40 years ago, after I was born. That Renate Dome, that concrete is now cracking, and all that nuclear waste is starting to leach out into the Pacific Ocean. You know, it's not safe, and that's only 40 years so, you know, whatever we come up with today, we might think that we're brilliant and we're going to solve it. It's never the case. And the costs of maintaining that, not just for the next 40 years, and, you know, the lifespan of, of a nuclear reactor is only around 40 years, but the cost of maintaining that and keeping that waste safe for not even 10,000 years, you're talking about tens of thousands of years you know, that, that's a burden that we're putting on generations yet unborn that we, we can't even imagine yet. If Welsh Government continue with their, their proposals, it'll be interesting to see how the Future Generation Act picks that up. Absolutely, but exactly. What, one question I've got around the book is that you draw out a continuing thread around nuclear power being used as a tool of colonialism, that continued extraction and abuse of natural resources in Wales. Can you just explore that a little bit more? Yeah, well, uh, I touched on that uh, in my previous answer. It is a colonial force, you know. Uh, you have companies and, and wealthy individuals that go into communities like the Northern Territories, like in Kazakhstan, like in, in Ontario. Uh, and, and these are um, communities of the Indigenous peoples as well. And they, they extract the natural resource from those communities, in this case, uranium and they take billions of dollars out of those communities and more often than not it's against the wishes of those communities you just talk to the communities in in the northern territories uh, in australia and they don't want to see uranium mines in those communities they have argued against them they've voted against them they've represented had representation in in parliament against them but nevertheless you know, these forces come in against the will and against the wishes of those indigenous communities and they extract those uh, resources away, take the, the, the money with them and leave a legacy of poverty, of ill health and of toxicity behind. 
Now, that's happened across the world when it comes to uranium. When it comes to the generation, uh, generating, sorry, I should say, of, of energy, they purposefully selected originally communities that were far away from the large conurbations. And there's a reason for that, because they knew that, that the technology was dangerous. You know, if they really wanted nuclear energy for uh, factories in Birmingham or London or, or Manchester, well, why not build them in those uh, areas? And they would have far less waste of energy as the energy was being trans transmitted across the lines. But no, they selected communities very, very far away and that were poor. And... Yes, we've had Wilva and Trausfernith, but we still have some of the poorest communities in the UK in those regions. We have lower incomes that are elsewhere in those communities. So the legacy isn't a legacy of wealth. You know, we know that in those communities, the companies made billions in money selling electricity but that money wasn't reinvested back into our communities. We didn't have any control over that. So that's what I mean when I when I talk about a, a colonial force. All across uh, the journey from mining through to production, communities and people are taken advantage of. And, you know, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to see us having energy produced in in Wales certainly not the weapons from the nuclear technology here, from the back and from the suffering of people in Kazakhstan, in Canada, in the US, in Australia and elsewhere. You know, we should be looking to the resources that we have, and we've got plenty of them here in Wales, to be self-sustaining in, in energy production. And when we produce too much, then we can also, as we are doing, uh, export it for a profit for Wales. That's not happening currently. No, I think that's a that's a, um, a really nice point to end our discussion on nuclear. Uh, Wales isn't benefiting currently. But I don't want to leave it there because you and I first met when I had a health hat on and you are now Plaid Cymru's health spokesperson and... Just while we've got you, it's, it's been quite a tumultuous week in the health sector in Wales, really. And while it's not ideal to talk on a nuclear pod about health, I did want to get your thoughts on the minister's announcement around the, the special measures. And it, it seems that quite a few more of our health boards across Wales might not be in the top tier of special measures, but it, it's changing and they're all in some degree of kind of inspection or review period at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, every health board in, in Wales uh, is in some sort of uh, escalation measure. Uh, and there's a reason why Hawelda isn't uh, in special measures. And that's simply because the minister introduced a new level, a fourth tier uh, into uh, the system, where it was four tiers, now it's five. Now, any other day, Hawelda would probably have been in special measures. It's not now because she's introduced that. So it, it clearly goes to show that by introducing that, that new level of intervention, instead of getting to grips with the problems facing our health boards and the health service, instead of being more hands-on and directing things and making sure that the health boards aren't uh, spending money that they don't have continuously, instead of making sure that they are properly funded from the off, instead of doing that work, 
it's a sticking plaster, sticking new in, uh, intervention level in there. So it goes to show that there's just no new ideas there. The government have, have run out of ideas of how to get to grips with health problems. And the one starkest issue uh, that, that came out from that announcement was the fact that in the Grange Hospital, which, you know, it's a brand new hospital, it's meant to be a state-of-the-art hospital, um, the minister said that they would need to uh, spend an extra £14 million for patient safety. That's a statement there, isn't it, of, of failure. How did they reach this point where four years after opening the Grange, they are now having to spend £14 million making it safer? You know, there, there are huge question marks there, and I will be contacting the Auditor-General and asking uh, for the Auditor to look into that, because, you know, I've been in a position where I built my new house. Uh, I developed a, a centre in Dolgeche. Uh, and at the end of it, you have a snagging process. You look at the problems and you have a snagging list and you deal with those issues before you pay the final bill. Well, you know, why didn't they go through that process properly and making sure that they had uh, uh, the hospital in place? Now, they, they rushed it. That's the truth of the matter. Everybody knows that they rushed the opening of the Grange before it should have been done. And the government must answer for that. Yeah, I think uh, I think there's all good points. I was, I was pretty familiar with the issues at the Grange and it is, uh, it is sad to see that we're in this position. But I just wanted to say thank you for that. Like your knowledge on nuclear, I think it came through hugely in uh, in the pod. So we really do appreciate you coming on and talk us through from your position. If people wanted to uh, get hold of the book, what, what's the best way of doing that? Is it a preferred way of purchasing or is it in all good bookshops? Uh, probably the best way is to go uh, onto the website, www.goingnuclear.net. Uh, and they can buy it uh, from the website. It's in shops in Carnarvon, Perthmadog, and Bala, and Carmarthen, and Pontypridd, I think, and a few shops in Cardiff currently. But if you can't find it there, then uh, goingnuclear.net is the best place. That's your book. But uh, obviously with the health uh, hat on and your wider Senedd role, people might want to follow you or hear more about what you you're up to on social media. What's the best way for capturing that? Twitter or X is uh, at Mabon App Gwynvor. That's great. Okay, thank you, Mabon. That's... No problem, Skerry. If you thought tonight's pod with Mabon was interesting and you haven't listened to the Counterpoint pod we did with Rachel Garrick, please find that on our website or on any of our social media apps. If you have enjoyed today's episode, then you can find more from Hiraith on the various podcast apps. We are on all the socials at HeroPod, and if you want to support us with your wallet as well as your ears, you can do so from just £3 a month at patreon.com forward slash HeroPod. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.